Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. And we are now in the last two weeks of a series that we started some seven weeks ago that will lead us right up to our Christmas Eve services beginning next Sunday night at 6 o'clock and then on the 24th at 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock. Uh, we hope to see you here. Uh, the Christmas Eve services here are always a very special time in the life of the Covenant family. But until we get there, we're going to finish out this series entitled Who? Uh, if you haven't been here in a while, this is your first time. Over to my right, there's a collage of pictures captured in a silhouette symbolizing a number of different people who bring different talents and gifts to the table, all operating as one body. We know that that's God's desire for his church, for every local church, is that every individual tap into and understand the way God has uniquely gifted them, and then they leverage those gifts and skills and talents for the good of the one body as the one body moves forward together. But in order to get there, you've got to have all those individual people people be self-aware. And so we've done, uh, with the last seven weeks, we've just looked at this issue of self-awareness. One of the great reformers put it this way, that true wisdom consists in two equal parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And it's one thing to know God, to look at the scriptures, to understand who he is. That's, that's incredibly important. It's necessary for spiritual growth, but equally necessary is that I know myself Not just those general things that Scripture teaches about me, that I am created in His image and likeness and worthy as a result of dignity and respect and and all of these other things, but also that I am fallen in sin. And I need to know how both of those things are, are occurring together in the unique way that God has built me as an individual. That's what we call self-awareness. And we've been looking, just using one. There are multiple instruments that could be used. We've used one here at uh, Covenant. The link to that is on the front of your program this morning. If you would like to take that instrument and you can follow up with us if you'd like more feedback on that. And it's a, we found it to be fairly accurate here, a fairly accurate way of, of how, how people can know more about themselves. Uh, but we've been looking at the nine different types of individuals. And one of the things I love about the way we've done this is we're, we're disinterested in, in merely typing you. None of you is just one thing, but all of you probably have a predominant way that you deal with things. You have a predominant way that you argue with your spouse. You have a predominant way that you're going to deal with the family drama at Christmas this year. You have a predominant way that you manage your money. You have a predominant way that you relate to your coworkers. And the more aware you are of that, the healthier you're going to be, and the more understanding people are going to be around you. And, and the more of that kind of understanding we have corporately as the body of Christ, the more aware we're going to become of who we are as one body, the better we're going to work together, the better brothers and sisters are going to be able to get along with each other. It's what makes a series like this so incredibly important. And no individual is more prone to be able to bring that understanding and to bring that reconciliation and to bring that healing than the kind of individual that we're going to be talking about today. And that's the person that we're going to call the collaborator. Your type. If you're a predominantly a collaborator or if the collaborator is high on your list of, of ways that you deal with things in life, it, it is that specific type that has the most promise on the one hand. Nobody can bring healing and reconciliation and restoration the way someone that God has wired the way he has wired you can do. But on the other hand, there's, there's not more real peril. There's not a greater risk that could be taken than in this particular type of individual because you, you you have the ability to engage at a level and in a way that can truly bring people together but because of your ability to see both sides because of your ability to to empathize with various viewpoints you have another ability you have the ability to become a chameleon and just kind of fade into the background to the point that nobody even really knows you're there and that's dangerous not only for you but for the body of Christ that may have to try to push on without you. And so today, 
we're going to look at somebody that's just like you. Someone who was thrown into a situation that made it very apparent God wanted her to bring reconciliation. God wanted her to collaborate. God wanted her in the process to save an entire people. And so I want to ask you if you have a copy of God's Word to join me in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 3. We're going to look at this woman and her background, and in order to really get a sense of who she was and what she was up against, we're going to have to go back more than 500 years before the coming of Jesus to a place called Persia. Now, some of you hear that word Persia, and the first thing that comes to your mind is this large body of water that that just sort of naturally and geographically connects multiple Middle Eastern countries. If you're a little more globally aware, you know that that was the designation, the title that was given to to what we know as the modern-day nation of Iran. But what you need to know about Persia, you need to be aware of what it was in the ancient world. Back in the Persian Empire, it has a history that that is breathtaking to consider. If you go back to the mid-16th century before Christ, Persia existed of 15 nomadic tribes that were just a loose confederation, and they were not united in any way that gave them strength. In fact, all 15 of those tribes are having to pay tribute to a larger kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes. But then in 559 BC, Cyrus the Great became the Persian king, and in seven short years... From 559 until seven years later, Cyrus had organized those tribal nomadic peoples into a strong federation that was powerful enough to rise up against the surrounding kingdoms. In less than three decades after Cyrus comes to power, the Persians had conquered all of the kingdoms around them, and they constituted the the ancient Persian empire that at the east went as far as modern-day Pakistan and to the west went all the way to the edge of Europe. That's what Cyrus did. He took these 15 nomadic tribes and he federated them and he strengthened them and he united them in a a campaign to defeat their, their enemies at their borders, east and west, and he extended the Persian Empire to become the great superpower at this time in the world. And so by the time we get to the the background of the text that we're going to be looking at today, the story of, of Queen Esther, there's a new king. One of, one of the successors to Cyrus. His name is Xerxes. He's also known as Ahasuerus. And we'll be looking at that together as well. And he rules this empire at its territorial apex. And Xerxes has a wife, a queen by the name of Vashti. And because she embarrassed him in the middle of a, of a huge feast that he was hosting, not only for his own people and his own lieutenants, but for other heads of state, he became enraged and he banished her. And he decided that the way he would choose his new queen was by conscripting through his underlings throughout this area of Persia, beautiful women from all over Persia, bringing them together and almost in an assembly line. He would meet them, talk with them, get to know them, then take them to the bedroom and then decide the next day whether or not he wanted to have another conversation. If he didn't, they went into the concubines, and they hardly, most of those women never saw the king again. They never saw another man again. They never saw anything ever again that the king didn't want them to see. There was going to be one that was going to be picked to be his queen. So in the modern day, we would call this a trafficking ring, because that's what it was. That's what it was. The most powerful man in the world ruling this area at its territorial apex, egomaniacally pursuing his queen in this way, and in the middle of all of this is an unknown Jewish orphan. Her name is Hadassah. She was born in Susa. Her parents died when she was very young, and she was adopted by her older cousin, a man by the name of Mordecai. Now, what's interesting about this story is is that Xerxes' predecessor, Cyrus, had actually allowed the Jews, once he came to power to return to Israel. But many years later, many of them are still trapped in Persia. And the young women who are a part of that group are the ones who get caught up in this trafficking ring. And somewhere in the middle of all this, Hadassah, for her own protection, assumes the name Esther. Esther is a Babylonian name. It's a a derivative of the the name of the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess, goddess of fertility. 
And so she's hiding in the background. She's doing everything she can just to survive. But this orphan girl, she's not at all what she seems. She is far more than anybody in this story could have ever predicted that she would be. She will rise up and she will confront evil and she will save her people because in the midst of all this messy situation, she is revealed to be a master collaborator. And God has put that same gift, that same wiring, that same tendency to react to people in situations and, and, and situations of irreconcilability. He's put that into you. Now, now what do we mean when we, when we use the word collaborator? Well, another word for this might be peacemaker. And Jesus said this of peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God or children of God. That's a good thing to be, is a peacemaker. Now, sometimes, though, we get this overly romanticized view of the peacemaker, like if they're present, there's peace. We think if there's a peacemaker, then when they come into the environment, instantaneously there will be peace. Yeah, and that's simply not true. There's no reason for a peacemaker if there's no absence of peace. There's no reason for someone to make peace if peace has already been made, okay? Now, we have a family here at Covenant, and they together uh, as a couple own a garage, an auto service center. And, and I, they've, they've serviced our vehicles. They've repaired our vehicles occasionally when they've broken down. And if I, were to, if I were to pick up the phone tomorrow morning and call Ronnie Brown, and I said, Ronnie, I, I need you to see, I'm going to bring my car up to you today, and as quickly as you can get it in the shop, I, I really, I'm concerned about it. I need you to take a look at that for me. He would say, well, Joel, what's wrong with it? What are you, what are you sensing? Is, it, is there a vibration? Is there a noise? Is it, is it blowing smoke? Is it, and, and if I were to say to him, no, Ronnie, actually, it's running like a sewing machine. It's fine. He would think there was something wrong with me because there would be something wrong with me. You don't call a mechanic if there's nothing wrong with your car, right? You don't call if you're a homeowner, an electrician, or a plumber, or anybody else unless there's actually something wrong. If everything in your house is working perfectly, you don't call the repairman. And likewise, you don't need a peacemaker if there's always peace. Peacemakers, by default, for some of you that are collaborator types, this is going to scare you a little bit. Let me push you to the ragged edge of God's mission by reminding you that peacemakers, by definition, work in war zones. They go where the conflict is. Because that's what they're there to do. They're there to close the gap. They're there to build the bridge. And so you will always find them working in difficult places. One great example uh, of this kind of individual that we have from, from our own history is our 34th president. His name was Dwight Eisenhower. You could see him over there on the right as a general during World War II. His collaborator skills were proven during World War II. Now, you, you may think, well, you know, I, when I think of peacemaker, I don't think of somebody wearing a military uniform. And particularly someone like Eisenhower, who, let's just be honest, killed hundreds of thousands of Nazis. How in the world could you call someone like that a peacemaker? Well, the way we know he's a peacemaker is he had to be able to pull a coalition together and then lead that coalition across the English Channel and across France and across Germany all the way to the Eagle's Nest. And in order to do that, he had to get various parties working with each other. Chief among them, Charles de Gaulle, who in the picture on the left is the man standing on the right, the, the leader of France at that time, and the man standing next to him, Winston Churchill. These two men couldn't stand each other. You ever had that at work? You know, some of you are project managers, and you've been dealing with that. You've you, you got something, and it needs to move, but you've got, you, you've got one vendor over here, and you've got a customer over here, and they're always talking smack about each other, and you've got to try to figure out a way to get them working together so you can move the mission forward. This is what Eisenhower did. If you can get Churchill and de Gaulle to work together, you're a peacemaker. And that's exactly what he did. That's exactly why Europe is free. It's because of people like this. They stand in the gap and they make peace. Now, now they don't do it in the same way as, say, a commander type, the kind of individual we looked at last week. A commander would be less like a Dwight Eisenhower and more like a George Patton. All right? 
gather up all the people that are under my command. I don't have time for people that are not under my command. The ones that are under my command and smack them around or do whatever I got to do to move forward, kill the enemy, flatten him like a tire. Okay? So when you see commander types, they tend to be on the battlefield. The collaborators are actually the people, the guys and the gals in the embassies that if at all possible, are trying to stop a war from starting in the first place. These are people who better than anybody else can bring reconciliation. They hold families together. They hold churches together. Many collaborators, even as I preach to you right now, are all over the world holding the planet together, keeping it from descending into chaos. God may have built that kind of wiring into you. I was in Dallas, Texas about a month, a little over a month ago, invited there by a group called Over Zero and... and uh, there were some wonderful people there, mostly strategic communications people, and they have been working all over the world to bring reconciliation and peace. Some of them in Kenya, some of them in Bosnia, some of them in Croatia, and they've been all over in these, these sort of hot zone areas where every time there's an election uh, or every time there's even like an outbreak of cholera or something like that, one tribe blames another one. There's blame shifting, there's identity politics, there's a, you know, the sort of thing we don't really know anything about here in the United States. But, but in those areas, the situation had escalated into violent activity. And so these men and women have rich experience, at least 10 years apiece, going into these areas, researching what caused that violence, and actually mounting a campaign to help people communicate better with each other. So if you're in Rwanda, you're trying to get the Tutsi and the Hutu to, to communicate together in a way that doesn't result in a subsequent genocide. That's what they did. And as they were researching some of the common elements that, that brought violence to all of these areas, they began to look back west to their hometowns in the United States. And they thought, oh my goodness, it's happening here. We got to go home. And now they're doing the same thing here. You know what they're doing? Collaborative work of helping people talk to one another. And it's not, this is not, don't get, the, don't get me wrong here, this is not a kumbaya, we're all alike at the end of the day kind of work. This is a keep your identity, keep your convictions, argue your convictions forcefully, but don't use words like rats and cockroaches when you're talking about your ideological opponents or maybe repubs or repugs or libtards maybe we could do that i don't know there's a right way and a wrong way to discuss issues there's a right way and a wrong way to to communicate in a way that doesn't lead to this these are people again they've been working all over the world and i was privileged to be in their presence for a couple of days to learn a little bit more about what all of us especially evangelical pastors can do to reconcile to bring this level of understanding to keep violence from breaking out. That's, that's what a collaborator does. These are, these are the people that can get it done. And when they're at their best, you, you know who they are. They're patient, they're diplomatic, they're low-key, they're reassuring. They, as one person put it, they see no need to push the river. Just let it flow. It'll kind of go on its own. But one thing they can do is they can bring various streams that might not otherwise run together, and they can bring those streams together and find a way forward. Now, now here's the thing for people like this, and we're about to see this in the biography of Queen Esther. They can also be too passive to realize their full potential. In the middle of the conflict, it's, it seems satanically ironic to me that the very people that God has wired to actually bring peace to our world would also be the people with the greatest propensity to hide in the middle of that and just go behind the scenes and just try to survive. That's what Hadass is doing. I'm just, I just need to get through this. Early in this biblical story, that is very apparent of her. Look with me at verse 1 of Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. We're going to come back and talk about Haman a little bit and give you a little background on him. But first, let's fast forward to verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Mordecai is, as you can see from verse 1, an Agagite. That identity 
has a history behind it, a, a tribal one. King Agag was the leader of the Amalekites. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read that God had, had ordered King Saul to kill all of the Amalekites. It's one of two holy war passages that we find in our Old Testament where God said, wipe out the enemy and wipe him out completely. And one of the fatalities, one of the casualties in that was the leader of the, of the Amalekites, King Agag. And so now, a thousand years later, you have a descendant of Agag, this man named Haman, who apparently has a very, very long memory. And as a result, a, a just awful animosity and hatred for the Jewish people who finally finds himself in a position to be able to take revenge for his ancestor's death. This is a dangerous time, frightening time, really, for all of the Jews in Persia. It's frightening for Mordecai, who is known as a Jew. And right in the middle of it all is a Jewish girl who's managed to hide her Jewishness, including her Jewish name. She's just faded. I just, I just need to get through this. Some of you, that may be where you are right now. You're getting ready to travel next weekend. You're going to go see extended family. And you'd really rather not. Some of you, you got a work situation and there's abuse going on. It's a caustic work environment. You're not at the top of the pyramid. So there's not a, a whole lot you can do to unilaterally change it. There are things you could do, but you know, I just, I just want to keep my head down. You've heard that before, haven't you? Just keep your head down. Just push through it. Push through it. I wonder how many people are in front of me right now, just like Esther, and they're just sort of hiding in the shadows out of fear that they are not what God has declared them to be. You need a Mordecai. Now, I don't know if that is me. I don't know if that's the leader of your small group this coming week. I don't know who it is. But somebody needs to say to you what Mordecai communicated to his adoptive, adopted daughter in this situation. Look at this next passage of Scripture. So the king took it. I'm sorry, go one more. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach, this is the eunuch, went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say the following. Here's, here's, here's her response. We, we're in trouble and we need you to do something, queen. This is Esther's response. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces... Know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Mordecai says to Esther, you need to go take care of this. There is an order that has been given. There is a level of authority that's been given to an anti-Semitic leader in this kingdom. And your own people, including your adoptive father and cousin, are going to die unless you do something. And Esther's word back is, well, I would be glad to, but you see, the king hasn't called me in to discuss these things. That's, that's some of you. I'm just keeping my head down. I'm trying to get through all of this. I just, the king hasn't called me in. And, and in case you think that's not required, let me remind you, Mordecai, if I go in there uninvited, it's six and one, half dozen any other, whether we have a conversation or whether one of his people lobs my head off. You don't go to the king uninvited. The only hope I have when I walk into that room, when my foot steps into that room, the only hope I've got is as he extends his scepter and then I can reach out and grab it for a safe haven. But if I step in there, I'm asking for a death sentence. That's a clear picture of someone who's obviously gifted, someone that God has strategically placed at this moment and this time to do this thing, but she's refusing to walk in faith. And that often happens with a collaborator. That lack of faith will come out and it'll, it'll appear 
to be lethargy or procrastination, indecisiveness. Mostly it's because in some situations you can, you see all the sides, you appreciate the nuance and you really don't want to be that person that arbitrates or that, that makes a decision. And so you may put off acting or making a decision, but you may be the one that God is chose, choosing to stand in the gap at this point. And if you're not walking in obedience, you'll try to just remove yourself from the conflict altogether. Again, wicked irony that the people that God has gifted to solve this issue and end the bloodshed, the one person God has sovereignly placed in this moment and this time just says to herself, I'm just going to remove myself. I'm going to step backwards into the shadows. Now, if that's you, you have a spiritual doppelganger in Esther. But as your pastor, I do need to point out one very real significant difference between you and Esther. And I hope you'll still love me after I point this out. Esther was a trafficking victim. And even though she is queen, the way she got there was by, be by being forced as a slave into the harem of this most powerful man in the world who also happens to be a, a, a maniacal egomaniac who quickly banished his last queen. And she's just been asked to step into a zone where he could have her killed if he wanted to. You, on the other hand, live in a free country and whatever your fears, they're probably not anywhere close to what Esther was going through. And so my, my million-dollar question here is, if, if her cousin Mordecai, in the midst of all that difficulty, doesn't let her off the hook, why should God let us off the hook? What's your excuse? You still love me? This is the besetting sin of someone who is like Esther. And we've talked about this. Every single person, God is wired in different ways. You need to be aware of that, how God has gifted you, how, where God has placed you at this moment in time. But you also need to be very aware of how your sin will present itself. For some of you, it's going to come out in pride. For others, deceit. For others, envy. For, for others, it's going to be fear. For others, it's going to be shamelessness. If you are a collaborator like Esther, it's going to come out in sloth. Sloth. And when I use that word sloth, I don't mean lazy in the sense that you just don't want to do anything, okay? What I mean is sloth toward issues that you'd rather not have to deal with. You become shiftless, you become idle, and you think to yourself, no need to push the river really means even if somebody's polluting the river. Just, just leave it alone. Eventually, it'll work itself out, and you just sit there and you idle, like you're in an automobile, and you've got it running, but you're not going anywhere. You're not even playing the radio. You're not even doing anything. You're just, it's just sitting there running. Nothing productive is happening. You're just gobbling up fuel. Fleshly collaborators will do that. They will use up time and resources and money and influence in a way that just runs out of the tailpipe, thinking to themselves the whole time, eventually, eventually this will just solve itself. There's really no need for me to get involved. Mental health professionals call this process narcotization. The idea, I'm not going to shoot a needle in my arm, I'm not going to pop a pill, but emotionally I'm going to figure out a way to numb myself from this stuff. Okay? Now, for a trafficking victim, it'd be very easily, from a psychological point of view, to not only explain how that happens, but to justify it. It's a survival instinct. It's, it's how they get through it until they're rescued. But this can be a very, very unhealthy thing in, in the life of people like you and me. And so in response to that disposition, we have this, this powerful challenge that comes back again from Mordecai. Look at chapter 4. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Listen to this man of faith. God made a promise to our ancestor Abraham, and he's not going to break it. He's going to keep it. And one of the things he said to Abraham is, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. So Persia's not going to be this great empire forever. 
because of this. God's going to bring them down because of this. God's going to deliver us because he promised that he would deliver us. So if you don't speak, okay, this is the first thing you need to know, collaborator or otherwise, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. This isn't about God having to have us do something in order for his mission to get accomplished. It's about whether or not we're going to be obedient and thus live out the full potential for which we were created. That's what it's about. If you keep silent, deliverance will rise up. We're never going to be annihilated. But you and your father's house will perish. You, you talk about death. You talk about, Esther, taking a chance. Once I set foot in that throne room, I have invited a death sentence. Here's the thing, Esther. If you never walk into that throne room, Haman is going to do his worst. You're going to be found out along with all of your people, and you're going to die anyway. You may as well take a chance. You may as well step out. But here's the positive side to her, her adoptive father speaking to her. It, you know, God doesn't need you, but if you don't, if you're not obedient, you're going to die anyway. So take a chance. Take a chance. Here's why. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Lift your eyes, queen, above the conflict and look at your place in all of this. Look at how God has sovereignly placed you at this moment and act in faith. Act in faith. And Esther responds to that call as only a heroine in your greatest, the greatest narrative you've ever read could ever do. And she does it with three dispositions. This is what you need in order to be an effective, collaborative individual. The first thing you need is boldness. You need boldness. Look at Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood. Sometimes that's the bravest thing you can do. Get this picture. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. This is a husband-wife showdown. But it's one in which the husband has all the power. Or at least he thinks he does. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Something just got married, man. You ever experienced this? I call it calming the beast. There have been moments where I, and we talked about my personality type last week, so you all know how I can be. And my wife, who next year will be 25 years we've been married, knows how I can be. But just one of her hands, very gentle touch on my forearm, can calm the beast. I, I don't, well, yeah, I kind of do know what it does. But that's another subject for another day. Right? You just, guys, you ever been there? You ready to face off with somebody, your boss, a car salesman, an insurance adjuster. And you're ready to do, you, you're just right on the verge of just doing something flat ungodly. And, and that touch, just, and you go. And you just, and you just kind of back away. And then you, you go back to your cave and you hibernate for a little while, right? She won favor in his sight. I would imagine, because by this point in their relationship, he knows who's facing off with him. And the result is, in the rest of the passage, he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached, and she touched the tip of the scepter. This was a very legitimate fear that she had to overcome. In Persia, you don't walk into the presence of the king uninvited. We've talked about this. But this action that is based in faith, this is the transformative virtue for anyone who is like Esther. Some of you need to be brave enough to step into the family drama, to step into the dysfunction at work, to step into a relationship that is not what it should be within your church family. This happens, just as an aside, it, it, Oftentimes people leave a church and there's, 
there's at least one, maybe more than one individual that could salvage that relationship and they don't do it. Is it because of fear? Is it because you think the relationship's going to be hurt? Step out there. Christmas Day is coming. You're going to be sitting with those annoying people around the table. Any, it's, it's going to be here before you know it. And for some of you, God is calling you to take a different kind of action. Deliberative action that is based in faith. That God has raised you up. Not, as a, not, not, not in some proud way that like, oh, without me. Remember, if I'm disobedient, God's going to do it anyway. Well, he doesn't need me. But he has graciously appointed me to this time and to this place to be the person that he has created me to be. Boldness, pride is a sin, but boldness is actually commanded of God in the scriptures. You need boldness. The second thing you need is diplomacy. Diplomacy. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. And Esther said, if it pleased the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. This is a, collabor a collaborator using the relational skill and influence of her position as only a collaborator can do. Now, can you imagine what that had to be like? You've got your husband, the king, and then you've got this horrible anti-Semitic monster who will eventually kill you if he finds out who you are, and he's most definitely after your people. To not just call him out right there on the spot? I mean, I got enough truth-teller prophet built into me that, that I read that story, and it doesn't. That part of it, that's hard. Like, I don't even know. How do you even do that? I'm reading that myself in my preparation for this message going, girl, why don't you just call that sucker out right now? Yeah, you don't know it, my king, but that's Hitler right there. And you need to put a bullet in his head. Like, just let's just take care of this. But that's not always the way to do it, is it? Very wise older man was a professor of mine in college, and, and I was a young pastor at the time. I hadn't been married very long. And this was the Deep South, and he talked about back in the early 1970s. So this is, this is obviously beyond slavery. It's beyond the civil rights movement, but, but this part of the South, it would take years. And he said, uh, he said, a man got up because we had African Americans starting to come to worship. That had been precipitated by young black kids from the community coming in for VBS. And he stood up in the middle of a committee meeting and used some language that I will not repeat, talking about those people and how they should go to their own church and there's no place for them here. And there's Well, y'all have heard how I deal with that, right? There's the door. I got no time for that. But sometimes... There was wisdom in this older man's description of what he did. I said, what do you do? Because like my response is like, okay, get out of my office now. He said, well, I, I invited him to our next business meeting so that he could make his case to the entire congregation. Now, again, different time, different place. Now, that's just stupid. You don't give that kind of airtime to that kind of stupidity, okay? But this is South Carolina, 1970-something. Different time, different place, perhaps different methods are, are necessary. And I'm thinking, but I'm thinking to myself as a young buck, you gave him airtime? And he grinned and he said, yeah, because it took him all of about three minutes to make a complete idiot out of himself in front of the entire congregation. And everything, everything he wanted got voted down. And I knew that's what would happen. So I just gave him the opportunity to make an idiot out of himself so that it wouldn't stay behind closed doors. This man needs to be exposed for what he is. And, and at this point, in this time, wisdom dictated that the best way to expose his foolishness was to put him up in front of everybody and let everybody see what a fool he was. And I thought, I don't think I could ever do that. Maybe that's why God had me be born now instead of back then. That's what you see here. If, if we went to war every time another country did something we didn't like or said something about us that we didn't like, if we were ready, fire, aim, 
all right, if that was the measure of our foreign policy, we would be at war all the time. And some of you are like, we kind of are. Well, I'll let you work all that out. This is why the world needs the United Nations and NATO. It's why we need a collective of embassies. It's why we need things like diplomatic immunity. It's, by the way, why families and the church need the people who would be in those places who are filled with the Holy Spirit and following Jesus to be in our midst. Esther says, I'll, I'll set a meal. I'm going to prepare for you both. I, I want to host a banquet. I want to treat you both to a wonderful evening. And then I want to share with you what is on my mind and my heart. One, one thing a healthy, spirit-filled collaborator understands is that the use of diplomacy is not indicative of a belief that all sides of an issue are morally equal. They're not. We, we live in a day and age where you're not supposed to tell anybody that their idea is wrong or that their philosophy is substandard. It's, it's, it's philosophical anarchy out there. Because the only thing you're not supposed to say is what I just said. That's a substandard argument. It won't work, okay? No, nobody, my son's studying engineering. Nobody wants a postmodern engineer. Oh, just design it however you want. And then when 16 people die, our main concern is that the engineer who designed it doesn't get his feelings hurt. But that's where we're at in nearly every other philosophical school in the West. It's anarchy. A good, healthy collaborator understands that. It, just because they've got a smile doesn't mean they're your friend. Just because she's cooking a meal doesn't mean that she understands, well, this guy, this situation can be redeemed. Somehow it's okay. We'll be able to live with anti-Semites. Well, she doesn't do that. The presence of moral complexity in this situation doesn't mean that there's no moral clarity in this situation, which is why for Esther, she's not only bold and diplomatic, she's clear, abundantly clear. Fast forward to Esther chapter 7. Let's look beginning in verse 3. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. King, I am a Jew, and there are people who are my people here, and their lives are in danger, and I am here to beg you for their lives and for my own. And keep in mind, she says this to the man she's won favor with. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. She finally reveals her true identity at just the right time, confronts the anti-Semitic Haman at just the right moment. And the result is quite comedic, actually. It's in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 7. Take a look at this. This is funny. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. Haman has been building the gallows where he will hang. He will annihilate the Jews, starting with his arch enemy Mordecai. And in, in the middle of all of this, when the collaborator finally reveals the truth, finally appeals to the king for mercy, and the king is enraged as he sees what this man right under his nose has been doing with the power that the king gave him, very serendipitously, all of a sudden, a eunuch looks out the window and goes, Oh, king, look, gallows. And the king says, those will do just fine. Hang him on that. And this is where the story ends, or at least this part of it. At least this part of it. They hanged Haman on the gallows <clears throat> that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. This, this, this whole time, Haman had been plotting the death of the Jews. And it comes back on him because of a good, diplomatic, clear, bold, collaborative individual. 
If this is who God has created you to be, here's what you need. Let me give you three things. First off, stop promoting unnatural harmony and start promoting actual harmony. See, this is the thing. For a collaborator, it's almost like when your kids are small and they think there's monsters in the closet, but they think if they throw the sheet over their head, the monsters won't see them. Well, first off, for those of you who don't realize this yet, there are no monsters. You'll be happy to know that. You throwing the sheet over your head doesn't make whatever that is go away, does it? Right? And it may be something else. Maybe you're, you're adulting now, but you're not throwing the sheet over your head. You're, you're jumping on a plane and going somewhere, or you're going out and getting a little bit more hammered than you should, or you're doing something. There's some kind of escape like that. And you say, if I just go away and just do that, then... Then Monday morning comes, and there it is, waiting on you. Right where you left it on Friday afternoon. What about that? Didn't go anywhere. Nothing about it got solved. You, you need to promote actual harmony. Stop trying to live in unnatural harmony. Everything will be okay. Everything will work itself out. Meanwhile, you're sitting right across from that person at, at, at family dinner at Christmas. Stabbing your ham while you eat, stare them down. Everything okay? Oh yeah, it's fine. Everything's just fine. You promote some actual harmony. It, it takes work, and let me tell you, peacemaking is not pretty. It's done in war zones. Okay, I can almost guarantee you there will be yelling. There will be stuff like that happen. But if God has gifted you uniquely in this way, you're the person to break apart that unnatural harmony and actually bring the real thing. Here's the second thing. Fight your retreat reflex. Peace is never made by retreat. The best you're ever going to get with retreat is detente. How many of you know what that word means? How many of you are old like me and lived during the 20th century? You remember detente? Yeah. Us and the Soviets build up this nuclear arsenal that could destroy. I don't know why you would have to destroy the earth more than once. For some reason, we felt like we needed the capacity to do it at least seven times. And so we built it up, and you don't blow the mess out of us, and we won't blow the mess out of you. And everybody understood that's not peace. That's not peace. We don't want detente. What we want is harmony. We don't just want the absence of conflict. We want the presence of justice. Don't retreat from a battlefront. Don't go to the flank and gossip and lie and do all kinds of destructive things either. Actually engage in the issue. If God has wired you in the way that we have described today, you're needed on that front. Here's the final thing. Burn your couch potato idol. There, there may be something in your life that continues to haunt you torment you, there's unresolved conflict, the death of a loved one, unfair treatment at work, and you, and whatever it is, you've just refused to face it head on. You're just sitting there waiting on it to solve itself, and it's just not going to. And you need to do all these things. Let me tell you why. Because this is not just about you. Without spirit-filled, collaborative people, for that matter, without people, Christian or non-Christian, whom God has designed in this way without those people doing what they were divinely designed to do. You know what kind of world we live in? We live in a world where the Nazis still control Europe. We live in a world where that wall in Berlin is still erect. We live in a, wall, we live in a world where the partisan divide we're experiencing right now never ends. But with people like this, with people like some of you, living in the strength of the Spirit of God, churches are united, relationships are stronger, and possibly, even in the case, like in the case of this young Jewish orphan, an entire group of people is spared from annihilation. Who knows what God's going to use you for? The question for you right here and right now is, what gap is he calling you to stand in at this moment, at this time, for his glory, and for your good. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are not only the Prince of Peace, 
but that you have called and gifted and designed so many of us to be people of peace. Father, may we sh just shed the, the false picture of that. This overly romanticized view of peacemakers. May we live and work and serve with the reality that being a peacemaker by default means we're going to be in war zones. That it's going to be messy. Father, grant us the ability to push past unnatural harmony to genuine unity, whether it's here in this body or whether it's in our workplaces or among our extended family members. Because, Father, this is you. You left the precipice of heaven. You wrapped yourself in human flesh for 33 years. You walked among our mess. And you touched lepers. And you embraced others who were unclean. And you hung out with people of questionable character. And you, you brought peace. A peace that's still available to us. If we will emulate who you are as the ultimate peacemaker. And I pray that that would just be realized in lives today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.